Turn in your Bibles with me to John 12. So we've been looking at some different um, different things in the book of John the last while. We've come to chapter 12. I'm going to read the first 11 verses. Then Jesus, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, was which ha- had been dead, whom he raised from the dead. There they made him a supper, and Martha served. But Lazarus was one of them that sat at the table with him. Then took Mary a pound of ointment of spikenard, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. Then saith one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, which should betray him, Why was not this ointment sold for three hundred pence and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and he had to beg, he bare what was put therein. Then said Jesus, Let her alone. Against the day of my burying hath she kept this. For the poor for the poor always ye have with you, but me ye have not always. And I'm sorry I'm going to stop there at verse 8. I said 11, I think, but that's where I'm going to stop. So I don't know if you have um, um, ever had an experience where you were assigned a task, or perhaps you had a test to take in school for you school children, and you chose to um, only do as much as you could get by with. You decided, I'll give it half of my heart. I won't give it the whole thing. And how much different that is than if you give that task or that test everything you got. In Mark 14 and Matthew 26, we have this, this very same account recorded. Three different, gospel, three different gospels, but the same account. few little differences. Um, John here says it was six days before the Passover. Matthew and Mark say it was two days before the Passover. So there's this little bit of a discrepancy, but if you look at all the other details, it would seem to lead us to believe that this was the same incident. So why that discrepancy is maybe um, unknown, um, and I guess there is the, the possibility that they are not the same incident, but it's uncanny how similar they would be if they are not. So um, I'm going to go with the assumption that they are the same incident, and if you disagree with that, that's fine. It's not a big deal. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to assume they are the same incident. Now, getting back to what I had um, started to say about doing a task and giving it your whole heart or not, in Mark 14, if we would have read that, we're not going to for a lack of time, but Jesus, when he came to the defense of this woman here, Mary, he said, let her alone she has done what she could. And that's what I'm going to, to title this talk this morning. She has done what she could. Are you? So just to get some of the logistics here, um, we have this, this gathering of Jesus and his disciples at the house of Simon. John doesn't give us that detail, but Matthew and Mark do. It was at the house of Simon the leper in Bethany. Perhaps this was a man that Jesus had healed. We don't know that, but he was known as Simon the leper. John tells us that Martha was serving and that Lazarus was one of the supper guests. 
And it seems like this was a um, somewhat of a cooperative community event here where they were all there to honor and fellowship and celebrate with Jesus. So we have Simon's house. We have Martha at the stove. We have Lazarus making conversation with Jesus. And we have Mary anointing Jesus. So let's break this apart just a little bit more just to get some of the some of the um, significance of what happened here uh, today in, in today's reading. The obvious centerpiece and the point of discussion is this pound of spikenard. Now, how many of you have a pound of spikenard at home somewhere on the shelf? Okay, Ellis doesn't for sure. He's saying he doesn't. And I'm going to assume the rest of you don't either. I don't. So what's spikenard? Spikenard, is, as I understand it, was a perfume that was extracted from some plant that grew in the mountains of India. Uh, some translations call it pure nard. So in other words, it was something of pretty of much value and it was pure. This was pure stuff. It was transported often in an alabaster box. An alabaster box was just a flask. I say just. It was a flask made of marble that had a long neck on it that was sealed at the top. And the only way you could get the contents out of that bottle was to break the bottle. And that's why I think in Matthew's account it talks about how she broke the bottle and poured it on Jesus. Once the bottle was opened, you used the contents. That was the end of it. You, you broke the bottle and you used it. Interestingly enough, these bottles of spikenard were used as investments. So if you, if you could say that you had a bottle of spikenard on your shelf, you had an investment. Not much different than if you told me you owned a few ounces of gold. That was their way of investing. They invested in spikenard in those days. And you could use it to trade on things. So if I wanted to, you know, uh, buy something from one of you, and I was maybe a little, little low on paper dollars, I could use my bottle of spikenard, and it would buy me actually quite a bit. Um, so that, that's, that's what this was. Make no mistake, it was not your average bottle of cologne, okay? It was not that. I could not determine how common this was for a person to have this, this a, a bottle of spikenard, but I would, I would guess it probably wasn't every average Joe had one, perhaps. That would be my take on it. We also know that this, this um, spikenard was very costly. Uh, Judas, who was good with math, he did a quick calculation. He said, you realize that is a year's wages there that you just dumped out. Mary, do you understand that? 300 pence. In those days, they made a penny a day. Around a year's worth of wages is what this, what this ounce of spikenard, or pound, I'm sorry, pound of spikenard would cost. So let's put that in perspective a little bit. The average worker in, in Minnesota, and by the way, we live in, in one of the top ten states here, so listen up, um, makes somewhere to the tune of 47 grand a year. So it would be the equivalent of you having a pound of perfume at home worth $47,000. Now that's expensive perfume, my friends. Um, I was just curious, is, does anything like that exist today? So I did a little research. I thought, well, let's look at evening in Paris once. What does that run? Well, for a mere $500, you could buy a pound of that. Well, that doesn't hold any candle to 47 grand, so that doesn't really compare. 
So, go to the search engine. Expensive perfume. Well, there are some expensive perfumes out there. There's one called Imperial Majesty. Anybody have some of that today? For a mere $215,000, you can get a pound of that. Sounds like an investment. I think I'd use that carefully. The next one down is 108000 The third one is seventeen two. so it drops pretty rapidly. But somewhere in between that 108 k and, and seventeen two is where this spike nerd would, um, would come. All right, enough on that. Another little difference in our story, our accounts, is how it was used. John, John is good at giving details that Matthew, Mark, and Luke tend to exclude for whatever reason. He tells us that this spike nerd was poured on Jesus' feet. Now, the, the act of anointing was a very, it was very common. If you had somebody over for lunch or for supper, um, it would be not uncommon, if you lived in those days, to pull out some sort of um, perfume, call it that, and you would anoint the man. I mean, it was not totally uncommon, but it usually went on the head, and it made the man smell good or woman, whatever the case may be. So it was somewhat of a common practice. In, uh, in Luke, whenever um, Jesus was in a very similar situation, and you remember the, the woman that was a sinner came in and anointed Jesus, um, and the Pharisee there was saying, if only Jesus knew what woman that was, he would, he would have some second thoughts. Uh, Jesus said, Simon, you didn't anoint me when, when I came in here, indicating that Simon kind of missed it. He probably should have. He could have done that. John says it was poured on Jesus' feet. Jesus says, my body is being anointed for my burial. I think it was poured on Jesus' head and on Jesus' feet. And I think that different accounts give us different details. That's what I think. But think about it. A very expensive perfume. If you had that, would you pour it on your feet? Is that where you'd go with it? That's where this, this lady went with this stuff. Mary went on the feet. And then she continued and she wiped the feet with her hair. And that's again one of John's details. It was very uncommon for a Jewish woman to let her hair down in public in those days. And it would have been a disgrace to do that. So, it was very much outside cultural norms to do this. But that's what this lady did. That was the humility that, that Mary exuded in this particular case. And the reaction from the disciples would lend itself to believe that that was indeed a, um, a very unbecoming thing to do. First of all, take this expensive perfume that really... You could use the, in a much more worthwhile way, dump it on someone's feet, and it has the audacity to let your hair down and rub it. Come on, lady. You're not with it. You're not thinking. Filled with indignation, sore displeasure, and declare it a waste. The reason of the real accusation is revealed by John. Judas wasn't worried about the poor. He said he was, but he wasn't. He had other problems. This man was financially savvy. He knew the value of money. He knew the value of a buck. And he knew that this was a waste. And it was more than he could take to watch this terrible waste right in front of his eyes. 
he couldn't get his hands on it to pilfer any of the profit out of that particular bottle of perfume. And the act seemed to put him over the edge because in Matthew and Mark's account it says he left the room and went to barter with the chief priest at that point. Interestingly enough, Jesus comes to Mary's defense. And he rebukes the disciples in that room and he said, Let her alone, why do you trouble her? She hath wrought a good work on me. She has done what she could, because she has come aforetime to anoint my body for my burial. Let her alone. The poor people will be here tomorrow. They'll be here next week. They'll be here next year. You can help them anytime you want to. This woman recognizes an opportunity when she sees it. And then he goes on to say, Verily I say unto you, wherever the gospel is preached, throughout the whole world, this also shall be done. This also shall be done. This also she hath done will be spoken of her for a memorial. Do you think that um, blessed Mary's heart at all? Here's this room full of angry people. What a terrible waste. You have no sense, lady. You know how to throw money away, all this stuff. And I can just feel this, just this, this sweltering, just indignation just coming down on this lady. And Jesus says, wait a minute. You folks are all messed up. I think that must have been a bomb to Mary's heart. So, very nice story. What can we learn from this? Well, a few things that I have jotted down here that we maybe could learn. These are what I call marks. Marks of that we are doing what we can. Are you and I doing today what we can? Would Jesus be able to look down on our lives and say, that man or that lady has done what he or she could? So what are some, perhaps some marks that we are? What happened here in this story that caused Jesus to say, she's done what she could? First question I have, is there any personal cost in your life? Uh, this cost, Mary. Is the love for Christ in your life costing you anything? For Mary, it was some money. A lot of money. It was ridicule. And it was the opportunity, or giving up the opportunity, to indulge that spikenard on herself in some way and giving it to somebody else. Jesus says in another point in his ministry, he says, And everyone that hath forsaken houses, or brethren, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands, for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and shall inherit everlasting life. Did he miss anything there? That's what you call cost. It costs something to follow Christ. And Jesus said, if you do that, if you're willing to pay the price, there is reward. There is definitely reward. How about ridicule? You folks used to ridicule? Is that anything that you deal with on a day-to-day -day basis? Well, probably not as much as some do. But that's a cost of following Christ. Jesus put it bluntly in Luke 6. He said, Woe unto you when all men shall speak well of you. If everybody's saying good things about you, you might want to reconsider. You might want to reconsider where you are. For he says, So did their fathers to the false prophets. How about self-indulgence? We don't that that really sounds like a word that you know, would anybody be willing to admit here that we indulge in self? We just, 
we just kind of cater to ourselves. It would be few of us that would want to admit that, but probably deep in our hearts we'd have to admit that there is an inclination, we have a propensity to do that. I really believe that. I think we've been influenced um, a lot in the last few hundred years with the, with the American dream, the American idea that, you know what, I worked hard. What I got, I got by hard work and uh, savvy business, and I deserve, I deserve, I deserve these good things in life. I have the right for some indulgence. Really? Is that really true? Consider this. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4, he, he asked the, the Corinthians this question, and I'm going to give it to you this morning as well as myself. And what hast thou that thou didst not receive? What do you have that you did not receive? Is there anything you have that you really deserve? Wise King Solomon in Ecclesiastes 5 has this to say, and he was, he was a man that did a lot of observation in Ecclesiastes. This is what he said. There is a sore evil which I have seen under the sun, namely this, riches kept for the owners thereof to their hurt. Wow, ouch. Riches kept for the owners thereof to their hurt. It's, 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 we must note that Jesus did not command this act. This was a total voluntary act to bless the Lord. Let's look at some of the other characters in this particular story. Martha was making supper. How nice of her. That was great. Uh, Lazarus was, a, was, was carrying conversation on with Jesus at the supper table. Well, that's nice, too. We enjoy that. Uh, Simon had opened up his house. Well, that's nice. How, how nice of him to do that. But was it a sacrifice? Did it cost anything other than the, the, the praise of men? i got to believe that when people left the house that night, they said, Simon, thanks for the house. Uh, Martha, good supper. Lazarus, good visiting with you. But Mary, I don't know. The praise of men versus the cost of serving God. How much are you willing to give Jesus? Is the Christian life costing you any identifiable thing? Has the love for Christ touched your pocketbook, your reputation, or are you willing to forgo what you think you rightfully deserve for Christ? All right, we have done what we could when our sacrifices exude a good odor. It says here that this odor permeated the room, filled the house, this odor did. I have a milk truck driver that when he, when he walks in my milk house every morning, immediately it's filled with an odor. I don't know what cologne he wears, but it is strong. It, it fills the, the milk house. And it's a good odor, that's okay. But this is, you, you get the idea, a good odor. It's interesting to me that in the Old Testament, sacrifices are often referred to as a sweet-smelling savor, many times over. When Noah got off the boat, the first thing he did was he offered a, a sacrifice to God, and it said it came up to God, and the Lord smelt it, and it was a sweet smell. That's what it says, Genesis 8, check it out. I'm also interested to note that in Numbers 28 and 29, and we don't have time to read it, but you can read it sometime. But those two chapters are filled with the commands of sacrifice and all the different feasts. There was like five different feasts that the, the Jews were to keep. The Passover, the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Trumpets, the Feast of Tabernacles. All those are outlined. And there's three things that are in common with all those feasts. 
They were to do no servile work on certain days. In other words, they were supposed to lay aside their common labors. They were supposed to offer sacrifices, and they were supposed to hold a holy convocation, or the NIV calls it a solemn assembly. Okay, Those three things were in common on all these feasts. Well, what can we learn from this? Fast forward a few hundred years to Amos' time. And in the book of Amos, here's what God had to say. He says, I hate, I despise your feast days. And listen to the next phrase. I will not smell in your solemn assemblies. Though ye offer me burnt offerings and your meat offerings, I will not accept them. Neither will I regard the peace offerings of your fat beasts. How do we pull this together? God commands this. These people do it. And God said, I can't stand the smell of it anymore. I don't even want to, I, I, I won't even look at it. I can't stand it. What happened? Well, here's a com- commentary on the people of Amos' day in Amos 5. This is them talking on the Sabbath day. When will the new moon be gone that we may sell corn and the Sabbath that we may set forth wheat, making the ephah small and the shekel great and falsifying the balances by deceit? That was the problem. They no longer had any heart in this at all. It's just like, let's get it done and be on. We want to be on with our business. We don't, we're, we're, we don't really care about these holy convocations and, and uh, not doing our servile work and offering sacrifices. It's just a drag to us. That's all, that's all it is boiled down to anymore. In the New Testament, there's three times it talks about a sweet smell. In the, flip, in the book of uh, Philippians, it says, Now ye Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated with me as concerning giving and receiving, but ye only. I am full, having received of Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you. Listen, the things that were sent, an odor of sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God. You get the connection? They sent the gifts, God smelled it. It was a sacrifice and a sweet smell. Ephesians 2, walk in love as Christ has loved you and has given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. Revelation 5, this is a favorite of mine. And when he had taken the book, this is Jesus, the four, and tw- the four beasts and the four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the Prayers of the saints. Now, now, just boil that all together. Nothing has changed in the Old Testament and the New, as far as I'm concerned. God still wants sweet smells, and the only way he's going to get that is sacrifice and prayers and good deeds. I'm sorry. It's, that's where it is. That's where it is. And that has to come from a willing heart. If you do those things out of any type of obligation... Sorry, it turns into a rotten smell. God is looking for people who will voluntarily sacrifice to him, who love holy convocations. Are you having a good time here this morning? Do you love this holy convocation we're having here? If this is a drag to you, be my guest. Walk out. It, it, it isn't doing you any good. It's doing God no good. God wants holy convocations that we want to be to. Is prayer a burden for you? Is there any sweet odor rising before God this morning? 
Hebrews 13:16 says, "But to do good and to communicate, forget not, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased." All right, another mark that we have done what we could. When we allow the cultural norms to keep us from radical service, we aren't doing as much as we could. The reaction to Mary's act here indicates that indeed this was abnormal. This was really outside of cultural norms. And we humans feel a little bit uncomfortable when we get outside of cultural norms. I, I, I mean, I, I'm going to just make the assumption we're all the same here. We understand what this means. Um, I, I have a neighbor that is unabashedly um, uh, shameless about his need to fill at one with the neighborhood. I, I, he's, he'll admit that to me in that many words. Uh, he, he pulls into my drive a few years ago with a brand spanking new pickup. Huh, new pickup. I said, I couldn't take it anymore. He said, I, I was seeing all my neighbors run up and down the road in new pickups, and I had to have one too. I mean, that was his reason. He couldn't take it. Um, he gets just wound up when corn planting time comes around because if he sees the neighbors out planting corn and he's not, he's just tight on the drum. I mean, he needs to get out there. There's no way he can be sitting there watching the neighbor plant corn, and he's not. And he'll whine to me. He'll say, it's just too early to plant corn. I said, fine, park your planter. I can't do that. The neighbors are planting. He just can't stand not to be like everyone else. I mean, it's, this is the truth. He'll, he'll admit this. And, uh, and I'll give him a hard time about it. Like, what's up with you? You know, you got no backbone or what? No, he doesn't. He's, um, that's, that's him. He's uncomfortable with that. Well... It does make me wonder, did Mary at all hesitate to do this act? Do you think she stood at the door and hesitated for a minute and thought, should I or shouldn't I? Should I do this or shouldn't I? We don't know that. That's a part of the detail we don't have. I would like to think she didn't, uh, but that I can't say that for absolute certain. I know she carried through with it whether she he hesitated or not. So the question is, do we hesitate or change our trajectory in life based on what is culturally acceptable. What are we going to do when we know that our action will perhaps cause ridicule or raise someone's eyebrow? You willing to go through with that? You know, we love to tell stories and hear the stories of Joshua and Caleb, two men that were willing to stand against the tide of those Israelites and say, we can do this, folks. Let's go in. Let's claim this land. I mean, to the point that it, it, it would not cost them their lives. We love that courage. We love the courage of the three Hebrew boys. We love the courage of Joseph and Elijah at Carmel. We love the stories of the Anabaptists that stood up in the face of all odds, men and women of faith down through the ages that were willing to give the ultimate sacrifice to follow Jesus. But you know what? It was their willingness, their willingness to go against the tide of culture that makes them important figures and people that we look up to today. The love of social acceptance and status quo and the inability of too many Christians to think and act radically for Christ, I fear has kept the odor that should be permeating our churches and communities safe inside the alabaster box of normalcy. I'm just afraid that's where too many of us are. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, he said, We are made a spectacle under the world. We are fools for Christ's sake. That word full in the Greek is spelled like this. I 
I don't know how to pronounce it, but where do you think we get our word moron? Are you willing to be a moron for Christ? Is that where you're at? Mary was. Be thou therefore not ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but be thou partakers of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God. There is an assumption Paul makes that the gospel will cause affliction. So there's a big question. We can somewhat get the tension between the world and us. We, we get that. But are we willing even to be a little radical among our own brothers and sisters? Now, now get me here. We can go off on tangents here and limbs to the point that it becomes, you know, unworkable. I'm not talking about that. But it's interesting to me that the people that were throwing the accusations were actually the people that should have been encouraging Mary. Should have been. What, how, how far are you willing to go? Will your love for Jesus spur you to abandon the embarrassment of being different and embrace the cross of discipleship, even in spite of a brother's accusation? All right, let's move on. We need to exercise the art of encouragement. That's another way we can know we are doing what we can when we exercise the art of encouragement. And here I'm going to turn the spotlight a little bit on the disciples. We've, we've talked about them a bit. They were offended, filled with indignation, as we talked about. I think one of the most lovely things a person can do is encourage a person. That is a lovely thing. And one of the most unlovely things a person can do is discourage a person. Those are opposite dynamics that have a huge effect on our brothers and sisters. Isaiah talks about Jesus and how that he would not break a bruised reed. And he would not quench a smoldering flax. I wonder why these disciples were so up in arms about this. I have a hunch. I'm, going to make a, I'm just going to make a suggestion that perhaps some of them had alabaster boxes in their own closets that they were waiting for a better time, a better use for. And to see somebody that was willing to do something that they maybe thought they should have and weren't willing to was more than they could take. And there was no way they could they could go along with that. There was no way they could lend their encouragement to that. I would just suggest that don't let it go against your grain. When you see somebody that's doing well, and maybe even doing better than you, to encourage that person. Encourage that person. All right. We have done what we could when we are willing to be accused of waste. Waste, for Jesus' sake. You know, we hear a lot about waste these days, and um, none of us, I would dare say, would want to be accused of being a wasteful person. I mean, who wants to waste time, after all? For sure, who wants to waste money? Who wants to waste food? Who wants to waste energy? I mean, the carbon footprint thing you hear so much of, you know? I don't want to do that. Who wants to waste a life or brain power? Who wants to do that? You don't want to be accused of waste. I tell you, folks, I think that if you're going to be a true follower of Christ and if you're going to do everything you can, occasionally you will be accused of being wasteful for Christ's sake. Let me give you some examples. In today's world, if you get a family of any size, it becomes somewhat of a condescending thing. You know, that's considered wasteful. Are you willing to waste your money and energy to raise a godly family? Is that where you're at? 
Mothers are accused of wasting a lifetime raising children when they could have a career after all. Some of you will waste your Labor Day weekend going to Chicago, of all things. Many of us will waste a perfectly nice Wednesday evening to come to church. And we will wa- hopefully we will waste our right to pamper ourselves to sacrifice for others. Fill in the blank. What are you willing to waste this morning? Have you done what you could? There is legitimate waste, folks. I shouldn't say that. It will be looked at as waste, but it is legitimate. We have done what we could when Jesus' smile of approval rests on our lives. There's many examples in the Gospels of Jesus' approval of what a person has done. Many times he said, go in peace. You know that. He'd heal a person. He'd forgive someone's sins. He'd, he'd have an interchange with a person. He'd say, well, go in peace. You're, you're, I, you have my smile of approval. Um, in Zacchaeus's case, Jesus pronounced blessing on Zacchaeus. He said, today salvation has come to this house because Zacchaeus, you are willing to give up all, the, all this stuff, all this money. For my sake, you have my smile of approval. What, uh, what we can do will vary greatly. I will grant you that. Uh, some of us have opportunities that others do not. I think the best example of that is um, the men in Luke 19 that were, giving, that were each given one talent. And then, you know how the parable goes. The, the man goes away into a far country and he comes back. And one man had gained ten, one five, and the other one said, you know what, I didn't think you deserved it, so I just went and hid it away. I didn't really gain anything with your talent. I didn't do anything. I didn't invest in Jesus. Jesus did not have kind words for that particular person. He said, um, you know, you knew who I was, and you should have invested that talent. I think if that person would have invested one talent, the story would have been very different. I really do. I feel that's where too many Christians today find themselves. I don't feel like investing the talent, so I won't. I don't really care about Jesus' approval. I don't think people would say that, but I think that's where they find themselves. It is maybe somewhat difficult to um, analyze sometimes. Um, I had a person tell me this week that that an incident happened to him, and he said, I felt like God loved me again. I thought that was just interesting. He said, you know, that particular incident just confirmed to me that God loved me. Well, that's great. You know, sometimes we feel like maybe, you know, we're distant from God or something. But this maybe takes some honest introspection. But I believe it will yield an honest answer if we look at it. Does Jesus' smile of approval rest on your life this morning? All right, another one. We know that... We've done what we could when we seize and we act on current opportunities. And Jesus commended Mary here. He said, she's done what she could because she knows that she won't always have the chance. You know, we are experts at spotting opportunities that we have missed. We've, we've got, we get pretty good at that. And we anticipate opportunities in the future. And we're, and we're absolute pros at critiquing others in the opportunities that they are missing. We're good at that stuff. But we are oblivious to the opportunities that are right in front of us. And it's not uncommon for us to feel like somebody else has a better opportunity or can do greater things than I. There's a Quaker saying that I had to memorize when I was in school. 
And I'm going to read it to you. This is attributed to a Quaker man by the name of Stephen Grillet. I expect to pass through this world but once. Any good, therefore, that I can do or any kindness that I can show to any fellow creature, let me do it now. Let me not defer nor neglect it, for I shall not pass this way again. That's a good saying. Keep that one in mind. In other words, you may not have the chance to do something tomorrow. Someone else may not do it. It may be your job. So I'd like to encourage you, young mothers, you maybe feel just overwhelmed. I know my wife has felt that way more than one day in her life. Um, Hey, do what you can. Do what you can. The opportunity to nurture your children are right there. That is what you should do. Don't don't, um, apologize for that. Don't be thinking you should be doing more. You're doing what you can and should. Young fathers, I would like to encourage you. Um, You probably feel overwhelmed with a mortgage, perhaps, and your job um, demands and these kinds of things. Well, do what you can. Spend the time you can with your children. Nurture your wife as much as you can. Do what you can. That's all God expects of you. Young folks this morning, you're only one young once. Remember that. The opportunities are limitless. Do what you can today. Older folks. Got any old folks here today or do I just move on? I'm not sure. I'm not sure where you fall in this, all these camps or where you put yourself. But do what you can too. Um, if most, most or all of your children are away from home, i got to believe there's opportunities that exist that some of us don't have at this point. Do what you can. Um, there's service opportunities. If you shift her down a gear, I'm sure there are. And I know many of you are involved in that. It's interesting to me that it seems that, and I'm, gonna just, I'm just going to kind of lay out on the old people here a little bit t- today, so just pardon me. But it seems like they kind of divide themselves into two groups. There's the people that want to pour the alabaster box on themselves and say, I deserve a good time in my old years. And then there's, there's, there's people that just keep giving and giving and giving. And I'll let you decide which camp you fall into. To my knowledge, we don't have any of the former group here, so just I'm not pointing fingers at anybody, all right? Serve the church. Do the best you can there. Um, and I, and I want to commend this church. I think we have people here that serve the church well. If you can go for ten talents, do it. If five is all you can get, do that. If one is your master, do that. But don't get discouraged. Just do what you can. All right, so let's wrap this up. You have done what you can. If your actions are worthy of a memorial, all right? So there's only two times in the New Testament that something is called a memorial. It's this time, and does anybody know the other one? Cornelius. Cornelius. When the angel came down to Cornelius and said, Cornelius, God has seen your alms and heard your prayers, and it has come up as a memorial to him. Only two times. And it's curious to me, interesting to me, that in both instances, here in the instance of Mary and in the instance of Cornelius, there was sacrifice and devotion and love and all these characters put together in one package. And God calls it a memorial. Do you think that Mary or Cornelius thought of their actions as something worthy of a, of a memorial? 
I think it's so interesting that Jesus goes on to say, he said, wherever, wherever the rest of the age that the gospel is preached, this thing will be remembered as a memorial. Why is that? He ties this action and the gospel together. Well, folks, this is the gospel. This is the gospel. This, this giving everything I have to Jesus is the gospel in action. Things that are so seemingly insignificant to God are so important. I'm sorry. Things that are seemingly so insignificant to us, to God, are so important. Things that we do that are absent of any pride or ostentation, I think that's a memorial to God. Things that are done in secret without fanfare. Things that bless others. Things that look downright stupid. Things that take time. Things that prefer others above ourselves. That's the gospel. That's the gospel fleshed out. Well, in conclusion, in 2 Timothy 4, 7, very familiar verse, Paul, as he's, ending, as he's coming to the end of his life, and he knows his time is soon up, and he's sitting back, and I think he's reflecting. And he tells Timothy, he said, Timothy, as I reflect on my life, he said, here's what I see. And I believe this was completely free of any pride and ostentation. He said, I have fought a good fight. He said, as I have analyzed my life, I am satisfied that I have fought a good fight. He said, I know that my course is just about finished. I'm almost there. The finish line is just right out there as far as I can tell. And he says, as I analyze my life, I'm satisfied that I have kept the faith. In other words, he's saying, Timothy, as far as I can tell, I have done everything that I could. That's as much as I can tell you, Timothy. You know, we live in, unfortunately, troubling and confusing times, I fear. Many today, I fear, have given up on the fight. They've decided it's not a good fight after all, and they've given up on it. And are in some process of abandoning the faith, dulled by the opium of worldliness, I fear, that is rampant all around us. When you come to the end of your life, will you be able to sit back with Paul and say, as far as I know, I fought a good fight and I've kept the faith? Is that where you're going to be? Or are you going to be in the camp of the many that have decided that to voluntarily give Jesus all of their lives to the point of looking ridiculous is asking just a little too much? And like the servant that took his one talent and said, ah, I'm not going to invest it. You will, I fear, um, share in his reprimand. So I encourage you, today, wherever you find yourself in life, whatever stage of the journey you are on, fight that good fight, just like Paul, and do what you can. That's all Jesus asks of you. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Dear Father, we come to you this morning. We thank you so much for this opportunity we have had to look at this example of Mary in the Bible. I thank you of her example to do everything she could. And Lord, as you search each one of our hearts this morning, I just pray that you would find a willingness and a readiness to part with the things that are dear, for us, dear to us for your sake. I pray that when we end our race, that we can look back and say, we've done everything we could. Lord, I ask for your forgiveness where we have messed up so many times. 
And we could have done better and we chose not to. Lord, give us grace and determination to leave this building, to keep the faith, to do what we can so that we end our course, that we can indeed say that we have fought the good fight. Bless each one in attendance here this morning. Lord, um, I just pray that you will be with those that will be traveling here in the next few days home to their respective places. Be with them and give them traveling mercies. Be with each one of us here as we uh, travel the road of life that we could uh, finish the journey well. I ask this in your name.